This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Just for a minute, try to tick off all of the disasters you read about over the last few weeks. And we are live again tonight from Maui, reporting from... There are the fires in Maui. ...because it is grappling with the worst natural disaster in its history. The earthquake in Morocco. Hour by hour, the desperate search for survivors pushes on. And now Libya is trying to recover from stunning floods. Libya is now coping with major flooding that has wiped out entire villages and reportedly killed thousands of people. Uh, the pictures are just staggering. We go live there are these eerily silent drone shots showing mud-soaked rivers overrunning their banks. And of course, with seeing these images of just water everywhere, cars were swept away, people swept away. So and here in the U.S., the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Association released a report just this week saying that 2023 set a record for the number of billion-dollar weather events. And the year, it's not over. It left me with this question. Did it feel like the summer of disasters to you, or is it just me? <laughs> um, it definitely felt like a summer of disasters. Tara Powell studies disasters. Her expertise is actually collective trauma. She says this summer's disasters are a kind of collective trauma, of a sort. The things that have really stood out to me is the size and the scope of the disasters. So, for example, what happened in Maui, how much devastation happened with the wildfires, also with Morocco, um, how difficult it is right now for them to just be able to find and do recovery efforts. Um, and then the numbers that are coming in with Libya. I think they said 10,000 10, people missing in Libya? 10,000 people missing as of right now. And I think they have accounted for 2,000 that have died so far. And this is just the beginning numbers. So we know it's going to get much, much larger. Tara's a social worker. She was actually living in New Orleans, getting her master's degree when Hurricane Katrina struck. She tried to help the city recover. In some ways, she looks back on that devastating flood nearly two decades ago as a completely different time. Back then, everyone wanted to respond. There was righteous outrage, and it lasted years. But now that we have so many happening um, and so much devastation, people are definitely tired and they're like, okay, well, you know, I'm hearing about another one. And so with that fatigue, people are like, okay, well, it's just another event that's happening. You can kind of become detached a little bit from the impact of the disaster on those communities. Today on the show, fighting disaster fatigue and cultivating disaster resilience. If you're feeling overwhelmed right now, this show's for you. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. 
This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Tara Powell teaches at the University of Illinois Urbana-Champaign these days, but she's worked in all kinds of disasters. She's provided emergency response after a tornado in central Florida, wildfires in California, floods in Iowa. And disaster fatigue is something that's worrying her more and more these days, with the sheer number of disasters ramping up. I look at disaster fatigue kind of in two different ways. So there are the people who are viewing it from the outside, um, you know, viewing it from, you know, seeing what's on the media uh, having empathy and wanting to support, but, you know, not directly having, having experienced it. But so there's there's that end. And then there's the disaster fatigue from survivors. I asked Tara to start out by telling me about the survivors. Because, of course, Tara has been a survivor herself. Back in 2005, when Hurricane Katrina struck New Orleans, she initially evacuated to Texas. When she returned, just like everyone else, she was picking up the pieces. So with Katrina, I lost my house and was displaced for a number of months. Um, and then when I moved back, I had to, I could, didn't have housing that I could live in. And I lived in my friend's sunroom for a number of months. Uh, and one thing that I saw and experienced with that was how much a community can come together. The people that I went through Katrina with are lifelong friends because we went through such a significant, stressful event together, but we were able to support each other. Um, And that's one thing that, uh, you know, disasters are not fun. They're not easy, um, but they can really, really help you recognize and build your community and recognize your own individual strength. When Katrina hit, were you studying disasters at all? I was, yeah. I was uh, getting my master's in public health and social work uh, at Tulane University, um, and I was studying complex emergencies. So I had uh, just come back from the Peace Corps in West Africa, and I had originally planned on going back internationally, but I was like, okay, wait, a complex emergency just hit here, and I'm living in it. Um, and I, it gave me a diff, very different perspective than I had originally thought. Um, it's not as uh, exciting <laughs> as uh, it is, you know, as as you might think. To oh, I'm going to go respond to a disaster. It's it's, but it it's hard work, um, and it it helped me understand what it was really like to to live through one. 
you know, when we're going through a disaster ourselves, our brain's not fully clear. We're on autopilot. We're on response. We're on, we get, we just have to go mode. It's funny because my understanding is that while Katrina was this profound experience for you, it was also one of the experiences that got you really thinking about disaster fatigue. Is that right? Yeah, definitely. With Katrina, it was amazing. People came down for years. But I do remember uh, getting questioned often in around 2007 when I was still doing that work um, and the funding was starting to dry up uh, for supports for people. People from outside who weren't living in New Orleans, who hadn't really seen it, they said, well, when does the hurricane end? When is this over? Hmm. Um, Everybody should be recovered right now. But still, most of the children I was working with, um, a lot of the families were displaced. Um, they was a lot, there were a lot of child-headed households there. Um, they were living, you know, multiple families in one house because the housing just wasn't wasn't restored. And so the hurricane definitely wasn't over. And with so many disasters happening right now. Uh, what we see is people go from disaster to disaster, but they don't recognize that two, three years later, those communities are still recovering um, and are still really struggling, trying to get their basic needs, trying to rebuild their homes and lives. And so I, that's really where a lot of the fatigue sets in for survivors. Fatigue may not be the first thing you think of with disaster survivors. Batera says it's all too real and pretty different from the initial trauma people may have lived through. It doesn't necessarily take years to set in, either. When she worked in disaster zones, Tara would often notice that the basics of getting their lives back on track was grinding for the people she met. It's very stressful. Uh, maybe you can't move into your house for a while. Maybe you, you're having to deal with FEMA. And so that's kind of those longer-term compound secondary stressors. It sounds like being consistently annoyed. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing that I we always talk about when we're working with people, the, one of the big annoyances that people say is just driving. You know, when a hurricane or an earthquake hits, uh, you know, roads are shut down. And just getting from point A to point B, just if your washing machine doesn't work, you know, you're not able to wash clothes. Um, being on the phone with the insurance agency. It's just all of those things, you know, trying to get your children back to school, um, trying to support your children when they're stressed as well. It's And so it's all of these things that can lead to kind of like longer term burnout um, and just long term just exhaustion. And and that's really where that kind of disaster fatigue comes in versus those more significant, you know, post-trauma reactions. Yeah, I know that you you responded to disasters in places like the Philippines where something like a typhoon happens regularly. I wonder a bit about how people there cope with the relentlessness and whether there's lessons for everyone else. Yeah, the Philippines was uh, really interesting for me because when I went there and it was around 2013 with uh, Typhoon Yolanda, when I was working with the communities, I said, okay, you know, this must be ex- extremely stressful. And they said, yeah, well, you know, we have these all the time. Huh. Um, so <laughs> I was like, wow, okay. 
this is a little bit different than what I, what I expected. Um, but they're like, well, what we do is we, we come together. Um, we know they're going to happen. Um, we know how to support each other. Hmm. So interesting. So different from the United States approach of, you know, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I think that is something that we can learn from the global population. Uh, you know, there's so community is, is really important, especially with these kind of collective traumas. Um, you know, we can't just pull ourselves up by the bootstraps when we've lost everything. Um, and recovery takes a while. So how do we support each other? After the break, how Tara is trying to give communities the tools to cope with disaster and prevent disaster fatigue before a disaster strikes. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi. I'm Jeremy Stahl. I'm Slate's jurisprudence editor. Ordinarily, I edit our courts and legal coverage from the comfort of my home office in Los Angeles. But for the next month and a half, I will be locked in a lower Manhattan courtroom with the rest of the press, a jury of 12 New Yorkers, Justice Juan Marchand, prosecutors, Trump's defense team, and the former president himself as history unfolds. I've temporarily moved myself and my family from Los Angeles to New York to cover this case firsthand like I have done in other cases, including the Paul Manafort case, the Roger Stone criminal trial, and Donald Trump's first impeachment. I'm hoping that my background knowledge of the many, many criminal travails of our former president can offer something to you, Slate's listener. Over the next several weeks, you'll be hearing from me on Amicus, Slate's legal podcast, and in articles on Slate.com, from the jury selection to the opening arguments to the witness testimony and cross-examination and the prosecution's case and the defense's case and ultimately to a final verdict. We will be providing you wall-to-wall coverage throughout the entirety of the trial as it unfolds from the courtroom. There's no way I'd be able to do it without the support of Slate Plus. So if you're not already a subscriber, please join today by clicking Try Free at the top of the Amicus show page on Apple Podcasts or visit slate.com slash amicus plus to get access wherever you listen. Thank you so, so much. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Tara Powell does not love going into disaster zones these days as a first responder. After doing it for years, she got frustrated by how limited her capabilities were in the wake of an emergency. She also started to wonder how she could prevent some of the trauma she'd spent so long treating. So now she's doing a different kind of emergency response, more like emergency preparedness. Yeah, I have a project that's in um, Florida, Louisiana, and Texas, uh, and we're in schools. We're working with children who are at the highest risk for being exposed and disproportionately affected because they're in low-income communities where usually those are the most impact, impacted communities just because low-lying levels, people can't evacuate. And what we are doing, we're not just specifically talking about, okay, a disaster is going to strike, what do you do? Um, because there are preparedness pieces, but it's about helping children identify the peers, the the parents, um, all of those people, places, and things that can keep them safe so that they could go to those in the event of uh, significant stress, a disaster. Also, um, different ways that they can cope with hard feelings, um, anger, sadness, grief. So that they know what to do. Exactly. And not just in the, okay, I need to buy more toilet paper or, you know, um, not just those, those you know, basic needs that you, you have, but what are the resources that I have, both individual coping resources, family supports, community supports, and what can I do if a disaster strikes to support my own emotional needs? You're making them emotionally resilient, just in case. Yeah, exactly. I wonder how you think people who are observing more disasters at a distance, like not necessarily experiencing them, can harness that same energy. Yeah, I think really that energy can be harnessed as long as they're provided some knowledge about how can we support people and how can we support each other in disasters rather than just hearing what we hear in the media. We hear, okay, this disaster has happened. All of these people have died or we're we're searching for all of these people uh, and you hear the size and the scope people, they want to give, people are inherently, you know, pretty caring and they want to support others, but they don't know how. But then you hear about the next disaster and it's it's very surface level. You hear about disaster to disaster, disaster. But what we're not hearing about much is, you know, the good stories of recovery. Um, how can we support people during that long-term recovery? Because it's just, there's so many events we kind of miss that longer term, well, what do we do? Well, and the images are so stunning at the beginning of a disaster, and you can kind of get flooded with them. Yeah, and within the over-media attention, um, if people are watching the media over and over again, you know, you can also experience secondary traumatic stress, which mirror post-traumatic stress symptoms. 
Um, so being constantly on edge, um, having dreams about disasters that you didn't even necessarily experience uh, directly, um, being hyper aware, being hyper alert. Um, and so there, there's all these secondary traumatic stress symptoms that we can also get even if we've never even experienced a disaster firsthand. How do you think about the media and its role in all of this here? And sort of my feelings or my listeners, potentially my listeners' feelings of being overwhelmed. I limit my media. There is so much that is going on and you can, and images are played over and over and over and over again. And I think it's important for us to know when these, you know, when disaster strikes and to have some kind of understanding of how we might be able to help. But there's also that limit of when do I turn it off? Do I need to know everything that's happening minute by minute? Um, Because that actually can cause significant stress on a person. And so kind of having that, that balance of it's important for the media to, to portray this, but then, we do have to say, okay, this this is where we need to stop. I need to turn this off and I need to do my own self-care so it doesn't stress me out so much that I, I'm going to have nightmares about, you know, what, what happened. Because seeing that kind of destruction um, is stressful in and of itself, even if you're not directly there. Self-care sounds so indulgent when you're looking at these huge disasters. It's really hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it seems like it could be indulgent, but really we have to, we, we have to do that to keep ourselves going um, so that we don't burn out ourselves. Uh, you know, it's beyond taking a bubble bath or getting a massage. Um, you know, it's how, we ta- it's how we talk to ourselves. It's how we uh, interact with the world. It's how we, you know, even take uh, doing, you know, breathing exercises, exercise, all of these things just to make sure that our own mental health is remains okay. Um, because, you know, with all of the information overload and inundation that we get, uh, it's natural for the world to feel pretty stressed out. Do you have rules around media? Like in your household, like if a disaster strikes, you're like, okay, I'll allow myself X amount of time to look into it and then I need to set it aside. Do you do anything like that? I do. Yeah. Uh, I, so when, when a hurricane is coming, for example, just, this is one example, uh, I will see that it's coming and I'll monitor it. Um, and I'll check uh, like once or twice a day. I won't listen to the news. I actually just do, I read (laughs) what's going on, um, because the news can be a little bit more stressful for me. Um, when, for example, the earthquake and, Morocco hit. I read about that, but I won't read about it more than once or twice a day. Um, and that those are those are kind of my my limits because we know things will be constantly changing, but the minute to minute reports causes so much stress that it's it's like okay, well, where you know what's what's the amount that I can listen to where I can still you know, function. And also, you know, if I'm called to respond to a disaster, I want to make sure I'm not overloaded before I go. Um, But I do want to have the information that I need. So it's that balance of information and versus, you know, 
feeling like you need to know everything that's happening right away. It's funny. I feel a little bit like we're in a period of adjustment. Like there's more disasters now. And, you know, we've built a whole system of response and, you know, how we respond to disasters. It's based on disasters not being maybe as regular as they are now. And that that may be what we're seeing here, just this new normal. I guess, yeah, it's it's true. And one thing I always I always question when we think about the new normal, uh, I always wonder, well, what actually is normal? Will this be normal for a long time or will we have another new normal? Will the disasters keep happening in this way or will they even expand more? And how do we adapt and how do we adjust? Um, because as humans, we really are resilient. We've been living in the world for a long time and we are able to adapt and adjust. And I think that's, as you mentioned, you know, a period of transition of this adapting to a changing world. Dr. Powell, I'm super grateful for your time and your work. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Dr. Tara Powell is an associate professor at the School of Social Work at the University of Illinois, Urbana-Champaign. And that's our show. If you're a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Rob Gunther, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hi, I'm Josh Levine. My podcast, The Queen, tells the story of Linda Taylor. She was a con artist, a kidnapper, and maybe even a murderer. She was also given the title The Welfare Queen, and her story was used by Ronald Reagan to justify slashing aid to the poor. Now, it's time to hear her real story. Over the course of four episodes, you'll find out what was done to Linda Taylor, what she did to others, and what was done in her name. The the great lesson of this, uh, for me, is that people will come to their own conclusions based on what their prejudices are. Subscribe to The Queen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now.